Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Our first topic today is cheap grapes equals cheap wine. Kim, when you see this, many things come to mind, correct? <laughs> so many things come to mind. You know, we, we tend to not like to talk about cheap wine. You know, we like to say inexpensive, inexpensive wine. Inexpensive, yes. But then sometimes there really is cheap wine. And it's like, okay, trying to figure out value. Can you spend not a lot of money and get a decent bottle of wine? And then often we talk about how does... How is it even possible to put a $5 bottle of wine on a shelf? Yeah, so it's, it's a quality versus quantity type of thing. To, mm-hmm. to get a price that low in a bottle of wine, you have to grow more. You have to produce more to make it that type of price point. And one of the things we always talk about is the, the people involved, the steps and, and people who have their hands on that $5 cost. So you have the grower, you have the distributor, you have the shipper. In Massachusetts, there's three tiers. Uh, the retailer has a mock-up and then that cost to you is five dollars so what actually is the price of the grapes right and we talk about this a lot and it's uh it's baffling to me the value so when we say cheap it's inexpensive so when you're paying that price look at what you're getting and why is it really that cost and i think what's interesting to look at and for what people need to understand is that for wine grapes specifically and this doesn't hold true for every agricultural product but for wine grapes generally Generally, the larger the quantity being produced, the less the quality of the wine. So as a grapevine produces more bunches of grapes, the quality of those grapes is actually going to go down. So grapevines are this this funny organism that they tend to produce the best quality fruit if they have to work at it. And grapevines that are planted in areas that are really fertile, have really good soils, they don't tend to produce the best grapes. The best grapes come from grapevines that have to struggle and that are planted in areas that frankly not a lot of other things will grow really well in. So when you do plant grapevines in places like in Central California where lots of other things grow really well too, those vines are really, really vigorous and they produce a lot of bunches of grapes so you can get really high quantity, but the quality isn't necessarily going to be particularly great. In Europe, they, the mentality for inexpensive wines is there. I mean, they hate to pay big money for- Oh, right, qu- there's tons of cheap wine in Europe. And that was all based on the supermarket market chain Aldi is it Aldi or Aldi I think it's Aldi Aldi they their whole motto is the least expensive wine they can sell and I'm thinking well definitely it's moved over the United States because a division of that is Trader Joe's and the whole two buck chuck thing so I think that's kind of trending now that people they feel yeah I'm going to get the the lowest priced wine it's wine Mm-hmm. and deal with it's it. It's wine. It's everyday drinking wine. You know, it doesn't have to be anything special. Who kind of, who cares where it comes from kind yeah. of a thing. But, you know, especially if you are drinking wine every day. So we look at wine consuming cultures like Italy, like France, like Spain. Sometimes you just want that carafe of wine, local stuff plunked down on your table that doesn't cost a whole heck of a lot and that isn't from them fine appellation, but is just meant to go with your, go with your meal. Yeah, an everyday wine. And I think in Europe, that everyday table wine is a totally different beast. 
least than what we have over here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they highlighted in this article was be aware of all of the additives and the tricks that are being done to get a wine at this low price point in the United States. Yeah, I thought that was actually an interesting addition to this article too, which was something that we found from a newspaper from Corpus Christi, Texas, where Texans actually drink a lot of wine, believe it or not. And what was interesting about this was about trying to make a consistent product when your grapes aren't necessarily consistent from year to year. And that's another big thing about wine grapes is that you might have a wine label that one year tastes one way, but nature might have a different way of dealing with the season for the next year. So you might have a wetter year, you might have a cooler year. Those grapes aren't going to taste the same. But if your market is looking for a wine that does taste the same, then that's where a lot of the manipulation comes in. So maybe one year you might have more sun and the next year you don't, you need to add something that's going to sweeten up that wine. Or maybe you have a flabby year and you need to add some acidity or the color's not right. So you want to fix that. Like there are all these things that winemakers can add to the wine and not necessarily tell you about it in order to manipulate it to make it a a product that they think that the market is going to be looking for. And we stress this a lot and it's become my, I guess, passion in wine. This has become your thing, hasn't it? Yeah, to just explain the only thing in the United States the government cares for you to know about or thinks you should know about is a sulfite warning. So all these other 70 things that are used, they don't have to tell you about that's in that bottle. So to make a bottle at $5 and you want to have it be a tannic or a heavy style, you add a powder. Or if you want to give it oak, you add oak chips or an oak powder. So there's games to play to keep the price down, but you do suffer from quality perspective, I feel. But anyway, that's the geeky thing we, we're into. I mm-hmm. mean, we like what we like. And uh, I just feel it's it's a very deceptive thing going on in the wine world. There's other values you can find, but just be aware of why it's that price. I don't think it's even necessarily only the cheap stuff. Like, I think that there certainly is this need for wine producers in many different price categories of producing something that the market wants to drink. So if you if your vines are just not producing grapes that are going to turn into a style of wine that people really like, there is this ability here to manipulate it. So your red wine is coming out without the amount of tannin that you want it to have. Yes, you can add some liquid tannin in whatever amount you want. And is that deceptive? Is it not fair? I, I don't I don't know, but it's it does exist. Great point because it's not just you're right. It's it's brands that know by marketing they they want to produce a lot. They they can take these steps too and they can get a little bit more for it. Mm-hmm. So you can just do your research or track down Kim and I and we'll, we'll tell you <laughs> our, our thoughts on that. But just be careful when it says cheap wine or inexpensive wine, be, just be aware of what you're drinking. Anything more on what you feel about uh, cheap grapes or cheap wine? Inexpensive? Um, no, I just like to have people realize that an inexpensive wine just might not be the quality of the grapes and that there are those other things going into it. That doesn't necessarily mean that an expensive wine is necessarily going to be so much better. There's a difference between, say, a $25 bottle and a $15 bottle, but you don't necessarily know. You know, you might like that $15 bottle more than you like that $25 bottle, and it is very, very subjective. But for something like these really inexpensive ones, we just wanted to make people aware that there's a reason why why they might be so cheap. Yeah, we would we would love your feedback on that. And if you have a hangover the next day, um, <laughs> please come see me and Kim. 
Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. And today we wanted to talk about a topic that comes up every once in a while and is usually one for quite heated debate, both for people who just like to drink wine and then also people like ourselves who are in the business. And that is the idea of the tasting note and what is important for you to write down or to think about when you're tasting wine and sort of what's your philosophy behind even writing a tasting note if you do. Mark, what do your tasting notes look like? Mine are a mess <laughs> if I handwrite them. But, you know, I find apps I love to use. My whole take on this is there's different types of people with their opinions on notes. I know you take notes when we, we do things, but I am just amazed at people who taste so many wines and never write a single note about it. That I don't get. Yeah, I, I don't know how they can. And they'll still say, yeah, I remember the 2012 vintage tasted like this. I don't know how you could even remember that tasting all these wines. I think it's just like this article said, it's the truth of what the taster tastes. It doesn't doesn't mean that what I taste, you taste, or what I smell, you smell, but it is our notes, our, our, pro, our right. pro, personal profile. And what really has sort of hit home with me, this was an article that we read in Snooth, which has all sorts of interesting wine stuff in it, is when you you are paying attention to writing a tasting note, you need to think about who is the audience? Who is this intended for? Is this just for your very own personal use so that you can remember a wine from year to year or whatever you're using it for? Or are you writing it so that you can get across the personality of this wine to somebody else? And I think that's where a lot of the breakdown comes down. And unfortunately, I kind of fall sort of in the middle. It's like sometimes I'll write my notes so that I can get across to other people people what I think I'm getting out of this wine and that maybe what they could be getting out too. And then other times I'll write like esoteric memories that this wine is reminding me of. And that's not going to be any good for anybody except for myself. So it's, it's sort of a, an interesting difference between the two philosophies of what is the purpose of your tasting note. I totally agree with that. And it's you find yourself I'm in, in the retail setting. You want to make a note to express what the wine is giving off, but you don't want to be too geeky where no one knows what you're talking mm -hmm. about. So it, there is a, a difference there. And at times I find myself, the more and more I taste, the more geeky I'm getting and I shouldn't be. Yeah. But it's also there to help me when I'm going down the shelf to, to oh yeah, I remember that now. Right. So and sometimes then, those things that you're saying are too geeky and that nobody else is going to get are going to help you the most. Yeah, it helps you remember exactly what, what you tasted. It, I feel, uh, my personal opinion is if you see someone's personal note, it is much better than seeing just a marketing statement statement. Uh, what do you feel about that, Kim? A, a marketing shelf talker versus a personal view? I, depend, I think it depends on what you're using it for. You know, how is it going to be useful? Is it going to be truthful? There, there's a, a number of things I think to think about. So if you've just got a marketing shelf talker in front of a bottle on a shelf, that is there first and foremost to get somebody to buy the wine. So it might not necessarily be telling you I don't want to say that it would be not telling you truthfully what the wine tastes like, but the language might be a little more to get people to pick up that bottle of wine because it sounds like it's going to be delicious as yep. opposed to something that someone writes from their own personal tasting note that has some flowery language and it's more the poetry of this particular tasting note it might make it intriguing enough for you to pick up the bottle but I don't think that's the purpose of those kind of tasting notes is to sell a bottle of wine. So that brings us right back to experience or the experience of the people buying the wine. You might want to just know yeah it's it's a nice Chardonnay that yeah. goes good with fish or it goes good with that 
that. Whereas the other note might be detailed. You'll smell apple, you'll taste this. So I guess there is two different customers and mass marketing is probably hitting a little bit of both Mm. and not being geeky, but just enough information. So it's the beautiful thing about the wine world. There's so many ways to express what is in that bottle and we all do it differently. The most important thing I I believe is if it's a truthful note. You you actually tried it and you believe what that says. You know, in reviews, we talk about points all the time, but you can go by someone's 90 point rating or 100 point rating. But if you don't agree with their profile or their description, I wouldn't buy the wine. Yeah. I mean, it could, a wine could have 95 points, but if it's not a style that you like, then that's not going to work for you. So that's why we tend to tell people to pay a little bit more attention to what is, what is the tasting note saying as opposed to what is the number score saying, because it might just be something that doesn't appeal to you. You might not like, I don't know, peanut noirs and so it doesn't really matter that this fine premier crew burgundy got a 95 point if that's not a style of wine that you enjoy drinking it's it's not going to do anything for you i think the most satisfying thing for me selling wine is when i have a note and someone says to me yeah i did smell vanilla i did taste that on the finish so i mean it makes you feel really good that you got that point across and someone took that to value that wine right and it is i mean it's so subjective what what you are smelling and tasting in a wine is different from what everybody else smells and tastes because you have your own sensory memory and you have different experiences and you only build what you are able to smell and taste in a wine out of what you've experienced before in your life. So yeah, that's what really what makes it different for everyone. And also, you know, physiologically, your nose and your taste buds are different from somebody else too. So you might literally be smelling something different from somebody else because your nose is different. Do you follow tasting notes like publications because you've agreed with them in the past? Like for instance, you know, this wine spectator, wine, wine enthusiast. If I taste a wine and then I read one of those reviews and it's similar to my review, then I actually go by that. Mm. You know, because you can see two different, totally different descriptions from two different publications. But I tend to find myself going to the one who kind of described it like I did. Yeah. I don't really read a whole lot of tasting notes. What I tend to do in that situation, I more pay attention to like what is the style of a particular importer and having tasted a bunch of wines from say one importer and I realize that I like the style of wine that they are bringing in then I will search out other wines from that same importer so it's not necessarily that I'm reading the tasting notes and are saying oh yeah you know I totally agree with that it's more like I like this wine and I like this wine and I like this wine and oh look they're all brought in by the same company I'm gonna say okay maybe their palate whoever's doing the buying and my palate sync up pretty nicely so I'm gonna go out and look for more wines from that person yeah that's a good tip and I it's the same way with me when I buy wine from a distributor they tend to have the same person that's bringing in the Mm -hmm. wine and if I like one or two of the wines in their portfolio chances are I'm gonna explore more things because at the end of the day there is somebody who is deciding okay yes we want to represent this particular winery we want to represent this particular negociant in France or whatnot so somebody is making the decision that yes we can sell these wines in the US and that one particular person person or a group of people, they all have to agree on this is a style that we like. And yeah, this is this is what we are seeing as good quality. So that's why I tend to pay attention to those things. I think I look at the the professional reviewers, you know, the magazines, almost as a entertainment value to uh-huh. see what what type of thing are they talking about now that's just out there. And we're in the industry. So when you see things like that, I, I tend to agree with you now that uh, you have to take them to, I don't know how to say to value, but there's some crazy 
crazy stuff in those notes that mm-hmm. just sometimes don't make sense to me at all. So, so really our takeaway from this is if you read people's tasting notes, just try to figure out a really trying to get across to you in an understandable way their impressions of the wine, the, the aromas, the textures, the flavors, how does it finish? What's the style? Do you think you're going to like it? Versus people whose tasting notes might be a little bit more poetic, might be a little bit more esoteric, that those flavors and aromas might not necessarily be things that you are familiar with, but just kind of go along with the, the creativity and the feelings behind what they're trying to get across. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are Mark and Kim, and our next subject is how to store wine properly. Very common question we get, uh, but first, Kim, I think we should break this down. Many ways we can break this down, but first, let's talk about what they said are the four factors in storing wine properly. Right, so these come into play whether you are storing wine at your home or whether a retailer is storing wine in a store, in their cellar, or whether this is something from a restaurant wine list. So the most... I think the most important thing is um, consistency. And so that's consistency of temperature and also consistency of humidity because you want to keep those bottles at a temperature where they're not fluctuating too much because that can influence how the wine is going to age. Temperature is key. And they're saying 45 to 65 degrees. It's more of, like you said, a constant temperature. You don't want to get it too cold and then real warm, too cold. It it changes the, the wine dramatically. They say dark environment. Right. We did some kind of research on this with lighting because there's a difference between sunlight, LED light, fluorescent light. It all it makes the wine kind of break down differently. Oh, that's interesting. I never would have thought about the different types of, like, say, the different kinds of lighting that you have in your store and how that would impact all the wines on the shelf. I mean, I keep mine in it's an under the stairs kind of closet, like where you know Harry Potter would have lived, yeah. um, where I keep all of my wines that are really you know low down in my house. So it's always dark and it's always pretty cool. Yeah, yeah not, in, about. not in the window. Not, no window. Not under no. direct lighting. Not next to the refrigerator. And they also mentioned keeping it still. So no vibrations, uh, no moving it constantly. Right. This is a big one when I... I'm talking to people about when they are storing sparkling wines and champagnes and things like that. You know, people think like, okay, well, I'll store it in my refrigerator because I want it cold when I'm ready to drink it. But you need to realize that when a refrigerator cycles on and off constantly, those are causing vibrations. And the more you vibrate a bottle of sparkling wine, the more you destroy the bubbles in it. So I tend to tell people not to store their sparkling wines in the refrigerator until like a couple of days before they're going to drink it. Or otherwise, you're going to see a real reduced number of bubbles in your wine. The last factor they talked about was storing it sideways or at a 45 degree angle. And the purpose of this, Kim? Is you want to keep the cork, if you have a bottle that does have a cork in it, um, you want to keep that cork slightly slightly moist because that will keep it expanded in the neck of the bottle. So when a cork dries out, and this comes back to the humidity thing too. So we want consistent temperature, but we also want consistent humidity. And we don't want it too humid in there because then mold would start. But you do want it in the 60 to 70% humidity range because a little bit of water in the atmosphere is going to keep that cork fully expanded. And if that cork starts to dry out, it's going to let more air in and it could also let some wine out and uh, start leaking out of the bottle. So that's why you want to keep it either on its side so that the wine itself will keep the cork hydrated and why you want to keep it oh, in a slightly humid environment for the for the same exact reason. The, the humidity, if you look at these, these older cellars, you can 
see some pictures of bottles that are actually growing. Oh, I know. All They're all like fuzzy. It. It's and it doesn't, crazy. it means it's stored properly. So it's, it's an interesting thing. So we had talked about a little bit about storing in your house. W- what else would you recommend from, from a homeowner standpoint for storing other yeah. than the Harry Potter closet that you have? <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of people invest in a wine refrigerator, uh, which you can either get ones that have different temperature zones so that you can have one that's at a white wine temperature level and one that's at a red wine temperature level. So that's a good way for people to go. And those are specially constructed to not have those vibrations. So that is one way that if people are serious about storing their wine and if they've got some that they want to keep for a significant amount of time, that could that could work. But really anywhere that's going to keep it relatively cool and be undisturbed. So closet works, um, just not your kitchen. That's generally what I tell people because the, uh, the temperature fluctuation in your kitchen is going to be more so than in other parts of your house because you turn the oven on, it warms up the kitchen a little bit, and then you turn it off again. And then depending on what the sunlight that you get in your house is, some people have nice big bright kitchens that warm up because of all the sunlight. So a cellar generally is a better place to be storing your wine. Yeah, I always go back and forth with this. Um, I had had a wine rack in my dining room that I noticed my dining room at a certain time of the day, the sun was blaring, the temperature was yeah. totally different. So I played around with the cellar, but then it got too cold. <laughs> so it does affect the wine. So experiment and you know monitor temperatures and things of that yeah. sort. I had a wine rack in my, in my living room because I have my bar in my living room and I had a wine rack on there for a while. And then I, f- I found that the wines that I was storing in there or the couple bottles that I had in my kitchen, they really, they fell apart and they really were not lasting as long as the ones that I had downstairs in the cellar. So I, I, I kind of learned the hard way that, uh, yeah, all this stuff that we talk about really actually is true. Yeah, it's an experiment. So let's talk next about storage of wine in a restaurant. What's your take when you go to a restaurant? What are you looking for for storage of, of a restaurant? So I'm making sure that they're not storing their wines in the kitchen or someplace that is going to be seeing a significant amount of heat. And hopefully they've got a lower level or someplace cool that they are keeping keeping those bottles. So it's usually about presentation. So you'll see it at the bar somehow in a rack high above the bar. Mm-hmm. So make sure that they're not all standing up for presentation. They're laying down. Right. Some will have wines personal wine cellars or wine closets that are temperature controlled, but don't be afraid to, to ask them how it's stored. I, I would, right. especially if you're paying good good money for a bottle. Uh, let's talk about retail stores. What do you look for? Do you do you look for these factors when you walk into a retail? I do a little bit, um, especially if a retail store has a big glass front and they've got some of their wines stored up there. That's like <laughs> always something yeah. that I look for. I'm like, oh my gosh, those poor bottles of wine in that front window. I hope they're dummy bottles or you know empty bottles up there that they're just putting up there for show. But you're the retailer. So what is your... what is your philosophy when yeah, it comes I, to storage? I think I'm a retailer, but I'm a shopper. I, th- I always true. say that because I love to see how people, you know, store or present the wines. The key thing for me is you walk in a store, no matter what it is, supermarket, whatever, what's the temperature? Do you walk in in one day and it's freezing cold and then you walk in, in the next day, it's hot? Is it always a constant temperature when you go in there? Because that real, real cold to that real, real hot is not that is affecting that wine that's sitting there. So do you notice that, Kim, when you go into a retailer about temperature or do you think of that? Yeah, I do think of the temperature um, and especially having a background for a long time. I also worked in retail and I always complained that we kept the store too cold because we kept it around in the mid 60s. You know, winter, summer, it didn't matter. It was a cooler temperature than I generally like because I'm always cold. So I would have to you know, wear sweaters in the summer because the air conditioner was really cranked up. But our wine director always said, we're keeping it 
this cold because of the wine. You know, we're doing it for the wine. And there is definitely some truth in that. And we tried to keep a consistent temperature either, you know, downstairs in the cellar or upstairs on the floor so that those bottles of wine didn't necessarily have anything bad happen to them because they were being stored where we were selling them. So I do take that into consideration. So the but the, the artificial Constant. light thing, you know, yeah. I, I, that I hadn't thought of. The natural yeah. light thing coming from windows, that, that I always think about, but I never, I never before thought of what is the type of light bulb that's being used and could this be damaging the wines too? We switched out all fluorescent to LED, but you have a lot of retailers that put those like spotlights aiming on the bottles. That breaks down the wine, the mm. certain light waves. There's all sorts of scientific things about light waves and wine. Huh. The other thing to look at is how the wines are sitting on the shelf. So if it's a corked wine and they're all standing up, to me, that's a thing to look yeah. to look for in a wine. Now, one of the things we do when, as a retailer is we dust the wine. So you hear a lot of times people say, well, the wine's dusty and must not be selling. You know, we just have a constant dust problem. And I don't we, think you're alone in that. There's, I think there's a lot of stores that do have dusty but when we dust now tell me what you think of this because when we dust the bottle goes back in the rack a different way so if you go to a retailer and you pull out a bottle and all of the wine sediment is always on one side that means they're not rotating the stock that's the way i look at that as well now i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing if you keep moving that sediment around yeah see then you can look at it the other side where it's like well we want to stay away from vibrations so the less you move that bottle around you're giving it more time to just lay there and not be jiggled around right yeah so there's two ways to look at that yeah. too but you have to make your own opinion just know what is what's the right four factors and that'll help you become a better shopper when you go to a retail store did you have anything else you thought would be a tip on storing properly um just back to what you said a little bit about wines and and their presentation in a store you know you will find a lot of wine stores where those less expensive kind of cheaper commercial wines that move really really quickly tend to be in the stand-up aisles so you know your your wood bridges and your your Mandavis and things like that. And then as you move to your finer wines, you'll find them all laying down. And some displays will even be like at a little bit of an angle, that top bottle for you to look at. So keep an eye out for those that if it's a store that lays down the majority of its stock, they're following those rules a little bit better. And you can tell that too. If you buy a wine from the same place all the time and you pop in that cork and it's always dry or you're always having a hard right. time with that, chances are things are not being stored properly. You know, how is the excess cases? Everybody Everybody loves to make displays on the floor. Are they storing those bottles upside down in the case? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, that's there's a certain ways to store it. So if you keep getting them in the dry corks, something's going wrong with the storage. So uh, keep an eye on that as well. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, where we post all of these podcasts and interesting articles that we are happy to share with you. Please feel free to leave your feedback on that page, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.